different sample and try those different things, but then really listen to what motivates you. And don't listen to what everybody else has to say. Everybody's got an opinion and they're not afraid to share it. Make sure you're doing what's right for you. Everybody and welcome to a new episode of the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I normally do this show, as many of you know, listeners know, with my partner Joe Fabrito. But Joe is actually in Boston today, getting ready for tomorrow's Army Navy game. You'll all hear this podcast after this game occurs uh, tomorrow uh, on December 9th. But it's one of the great traditions in the sports business, and I know Joe's going to have a good time. It's in Boston this year. At I think at Foxborough, in Foxborough. Uh, anyway, uh, hopefully Joe's having a good time, and I'm going to do the show solo, but I shouldn't have a problem in terms of content that we can get into because I got a great guest. I'm excited to have this conversation with him. This is an individual who has a wealth of impressive experience in sports and technology and marketing, really diverse background with some really interesting stops along the way, including Oracle, the NBA, the NHL, StubHub, all kinds of VC startup stuff. Really fascinating individual with, with a, a unique set of experiences that should allow us to have a great conversation. And now, actually for a while, he's been running his own consulting and advisory firm, 77 Analytics, which is advising dozens of companies and, and mostly in, uh, I, I think, in tech, but we'll hear about it a little bit. Anyway, I'm talking about Scott Jablonski. Some of you listeners from the business who maybe a little bit um, have, have been around the industry for a while may know him from his time at StubHub, NHL, and NBA. Some of you don't. So, Scott, welcome to the show. Really pleased to have you. Thank you, Tom. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy about that intro that you could not have made me sound more accomplished. So thank you. I appreciate well, it. Well, I was looking at your uh, your LinkedIn uh, your LinkedIn profile earlier, and, and I think I need to do like five scrolls to, to get to the bottom <laughs> to get to the bottom of it because you've done so much stuff. Anyway, Scott, why don't we just let you introduce yourself more properly? Why don't you take just a couple minutes and do the story, and uh, then we'll get into uh, stuff because I want to use some of the things you'll mention. In, in your set of experiences as springboards for some of the conversations we'll have. So why don't you just explain things? Yeah, sure, Tom. Thank you. Um, well, hello from San Francisco, California, where I've lived now for the last eight years with my wife and our two young kids. Um, like you mentioned, I do have my own consulting and advisory firm called 77 Analytics. I've had that since 2015, uh, but I've been working for 25 years now, um, originally from upstate New York. Um, and the first person in my family to go to university or college. So for me, that really imbued a sense of the power of education and mentorship, which you'll see in my narrative a little bit later on. So I went to school at Rensselaer, an engineering school in upstate New York for undergraduate and graduate. Um, moved out here to California the first time in 2001 to work for Oracle as a product manager. Got to be absolutely blown away with the talent out here. Um, and as I like to joke, be the dumbest guy in the room. And it really opened me up to the power of technology and the application of that across many industries. Um, was out here for five years, then went to Harvard Business School, um, was there with, again, very talented people. But I also saw a lot of people who had a dream but might not have chased it. And for me, I was like, I got a shot at this, a kick at the can. I want to go for sports. And I ended up getting a job at the NBA after my MBA. Uh, met my wife there. Um, worked in the Teambo Group, which is an internal consultancy that works with all the teams across the N, the W, and the D leagues. Um, really loved it. Had a blast for a couple of years, and then got a call from the National Hockey League to come over and do a bit more of that and build out sort of a mini Teambo, which we jokingly referred to as Scottbo. Um, so <laughs> did that for six years. Worked on collective bargaining. Worked with um, very intelligent and accomplished owners and and the Players Association as well. And then after eight years in New York at the leagues, uh, my wife and I want to move back to California, where she's from, where I was living at one point, and start a family. And that's when I started the consulting uh, and advisory firm. So I've been doing that for the last eight and a half years. I did have a break for a little while while I went to StubHub and was a general manager of their NBA, NFL, and NHL businesses. Again, great learning experience. Loved it. And as you alluded to now, Tom, my focus is working on uh, younger tech companies, uh, pre-seed to Series A. First started in sports, but then started to broaden out into health and fitness and consumer. Now I'm working in AI. So it's a really fun time to be working with these companies and such brilliant, intelligent, driven founders who are teaching me things every day. That's the best part for me. So I'm very fortunate to have had that experience. 
we're going to start. I have so many questions, but let's start with this one because you and I have had similar experiences of working for large companies and then doing consulting. Yep. I think this is a really interesting question, especially for young people thinking about how to develop their careers. Talk about the differences between working for large organizations and then what's going on in the startup scene with founders and the mindset for entrepreneurs that's required and stuff like that. Because obviously you're you're helping many entrepreneurs right now develop their business knowledge of strategic thinking, et cetera. But you kind of know what's happening in the big places like Oracle and Subhub and things like that. So, so talk about that if you would. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's something that I've gone through in my career where I've worked at big companies and small companies. Technically, I had to work at a company of one right now because that's me. Right. Um, but working at Oracle, there were 40,000 employees when I was there or in government, which I've done as well, which you know, tens of thousands of employees. I think for, for younger talent, as we're evaluating what to do, I would go back to a lesson I learned in my career, especially in the first eight to 10 years of your career. You want to open as many doors as possible. You want to try different things because when you're 55 years old, you're not really trying a whole bunch of new things, right? You're kind of set in your path at that point. So working at a big company is a great foundational set of learnings because you get to see the machinations of, of business and commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, you have a specific remit inside of a larger company. You are the product manager on this particular product. Um but then the flip side is when you're at a smaller company, you can drink from the fire hose and learn all kinds of things. So I think, you know, as you expose yourself earlier in your career to different experiences, you want to ask yourself, do I want to be a specialist or do I want to be a generalist? And for someone like me, I thought I didn't want to be a specialist. I thought I wanted to be a product manager or just in data and analytics, which I did for a while in sports and other places. But honestly, I think I just wanted to, as I call it, sample from the um, salad buffet of life. Like I wanted to try different things and be a generalist. Mm-hmm. So for me, I found a lot of the foundational learnings at an Oracle or big companies like that helped stabilize my learnings and give me a lot of good lessons. Um, but quite honestly, for me and my personality, I think big organizations are sometimes too political and mm-hmm. I just want to kind of get the work done. So that's why I love working with smaller companies because You just have to take a bucket and start bailing water out of the boat, right? Like that's what smaller companies are about. But what I'd also tell you is there's an energy level. And I think the energy levels I've seen in big companies, it can definitely spike around accomplishments, events, big news, all those things. But there's just a constant drumbeat of energy in younger companies, which I find addictive and keeps me young for my age, I think. So um, your mileage may vary. And I think it's important to younger folks in their career to sample and try those different things, but then really listen to what motivates you and don't listen to what everybody else has to say. Everybody's got an opinion and they're not afraid to share it. Make sure you're doing what's right for you in your development and where you want to take your, your career going forward. That's a, that's a fantastic answer. Uh, really, really well, well said. I think you've made a point that some people can relate to as they get a little bit older and ostensibly often with more responsibility is that part of the reality of large companies is that you are playing some politics. You've you've got to kind of play the part of the department head or whatever you're doing. And you start seeing behaviors in terms of upward managing and some of the negative stuff around that in political organizations. And, and most large companies have a degree, a certain degree of politics, of course, that can become fill in the blank, demotivating, stultifying annoying, whatever. But a lot of people continue to play it, have careers 25, 30, 35 years at the same place. Like you, I felt at a certain point, I wasn't interested in that aspect of working, just all the, the politics and stuff like that. And so it's a it's a topic that comes up a lot in, in career discussions in that you can, there are a lot more options right now in the marketplace, obviously for people. But I think that combo of foundational experience at larger companies, and then some exposure to small companies to really round things out as a a smart combination or compromise, let's say. Well, you know, the way I've thought about it too is, um, especially given my kind of non-traditional background and and upbringing, that you hear the the term, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, And I think that's the easiest way to describe a career. However, I actually think a career is not a marathon, but several 5Ks, one after the other. And there's sort of these chapters, these phases. And if you look at my career, 
it was being brought up in upstate New York in a blue collar town, going to the Bay Area and learning technology from brilliant people, going to business school and opening my aperture even wider, getting to New York and doing professional sports for eight years at the leagues, the NBA and the NHL. And now this, these last eight and a half years in San Francisco and building my own business um, and the StubHub experience. So for me, those have been the checkpoints along the way. And there could be another checkpoint tomorrow. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, but, you know, I, I tell, especially, again, people who are a little bit more nascent in their careers to think about those phases and your tastes change. Right. Right. Like, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the the biggest difference between a big company and a small company in terms of the employees and the staff is risk profile and risk tolerance. And right. when you're 22 years old and out of undergrad and you don't have a spouse and you don't have kids or a mortgage, great, load me up with risk. Let's go. The world's, you know, the, my oyster. But as you get later into your life and career, you have more things <laughs> that you, you don't want to let slip by. And I think that's where you become more risk averse naturally. And just as a broad generalization, I think you find people, like you said, Tom, some people have been 20 years in their career at a big company. There is a sense of risk aversion. Like, hey, I've got my my space carved out. I enjoy mm-hmm. what I do. I like who I work with. I don't want to change it. Right. And so there isn't that like, hey, let's break it. Like you see in technology companies who are right. smaller and younger, right? Um, so it's all about your risk profile and what you want to yeah. do. And for me, um, working with the and advising the younger companies, I get to taste a little bit of that risk, um, but still be able to work with a bunch of companies and kind of uh, have a portfolio of things to to balance against. Yeah, yeah, well said. Again, let's talk about the when, when you first got into sports. It was two thousand eight ish, seven. Okay, so early stage social media. Early stage mobile iPhone actually launched in seven, as you know, the world was about to change quite dramatically as it related to uh, digital and technology and its role in sports. How did you handle what occurred after you got into it? Because things were quite crazy for a few years there, like late aughts going into the age of uh, full mobilization dominant social media, early streaming, et cetera. So, so talk about like what you witnessed along the way. Yeah. The first week I was at the NBA, the Donaghy rough crisis broke. Oh, interesting. And, okay. Uh, my fifth day on the job on a Friday, David Cern, who was then the commissioner, had an internal meeting. He actually did a press conference about it. And then we had an event, internal event, just scheduled, scheduled ran in like a summer event. And I was thinking, what's going to happen with my career <laughs> if there's a ref and this whole thing going on with Donnie? Um, but and that actually feeds into some of the social media thing, because you're starting to see that flywheel start to turn more. And um, for a long time, you know, just as a broad business concept, you try to control the messaging as a business, right? Something goes out there, you say, no, here's how we're going to frame it for the market. Here you go. But with social media, <laughs> everybody has an opinion. And they can put it out there whenever they want. Um, and we can argue about, you know, truth and validity and all those things, but effectively it's out there. Um, so I think what I've seen in sports, the change that I've seen, like I've been a sports fan my whole life, obviously. Um, but, you know, working in sport now for 15, 16 years and seeing about domestically and internationally, and I should share that I'm a dual EU US citizen. So I get to work with companies across the pond. Um, the consumption's changing. There's no question in my mind. I think the biggest thing I see is that when I was maybe younger, you know, when I was a a teenager watching the New York Yankees or something, right? I was a Yankees fan. I'm sure I like the players, right? But I was always a Yankees fan. Right. I think what's changed now, especially in the era of social media, is people are seeing athletes and then writ large celebrities, influencers, those kind of people as their own brand. And the thing that really cracked it open in my mind, at least, you know, I was a former NBA employee at the time, was LeBron James. So LeBron was this kid out of Akron, all this buzz around him, wearing 23 and all that stuff. And then he's at the Cavs and then he's like, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. And you literally saw Cavaliers fans burning their jerseys. Right. Then they bought Miami Heat jerseys. And then he went back to Cleveland and they burned the Heat jerseys. And then he went to the Lakers and burned those jerseys in Cleveland again. So what you find is, or what I'm what I'm seeing at least is that the consumption's changing. It's that I tie my fandom to LeBron and maybe less so with the team. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing for the leagues to reckon with because the leagues have the teams and the teams by contract law employ the labor of the players, right? And I think what this provides though is an amazing opportunity for the more nascent leagues. So when you think of the NWSL and when you think of these other, you know, newer leagues, not the ones that have been around for a hundred years, you can have more of a bet on the talent and you can say, hey, there's a particular athlete who represents something to her fans, his fans, whomever's fans. Mm -hmm. And that is then leading to consumption changes with more engagement on social media with that athlete and potentially through the league and the team, but maybe that's not as guaranteed. So these are all shifting demographics that the leagues really must come to grips with. And and the other big thing from the business side is this, go to a New York Rangers or New York Knicks game at MSG in, in the city and the people sitting at center, sitting at center court or in the best seats aren't 23 year old minority females on their phones. These are 60 year old Caucasian businessmen, right? Or maybe non-Caucasian businessmen and businesswomen. And there's a demographic shift that's going on there. So for the league itself, as you're thinking about selling the, as we call them, the Nicholson seats because of Jack Nicholson at the Lakers, the Nicholson seats, or big expensive seats at an, at an event, you're going to have to cater to the corporate side. But the corporate side isn't the folks, or isn't comprised of the folks usually who's on social media, right? Buzzing around things. So all of these changing dynamics, I find really intriguing because there's no immediate answer to them, but they're going to have to figure this out. And what I would say is the staying power of the leagues is the staying power of the leagues. They've been around in business for a hundred years or so they'll likely figure out there are a lot of smart, intelligent people there, but there will be some changes that will have to take place. And even in the adoption of how you take in the game, right? Like it's not just sitting in front of a game, me as a 10 year old watching Yankees game for three and a half hours. It's you're on your phone every five seconds, right? You're on your WhatsApp channel with your buddies. You're, you're gambling, you're doing fantasy. So it's shifting your attention away from following the team for the whole game. It's Mm -hmm. not like, Hey, who's on my roster tonight? Right. Right. Or who do I who am I betting tonight? That's where I think a lot of shifting winds are are changing the, the landscape of sports broadly. Yeah, it's almost as though there's a built-in influencer marketing business to be unlocked with these leagues. I think that's what you're suggesting, like with the nascent leagues. Yeah. If you can really capitalize on the talent and the fact that because they're younger, they're digital natives, self-expression, social media, um, execution is more natural to them so they are influencers in their own right already coming into the league and it seems as though the smart leagues are can harness that can figure out a way to should figure out to harness that obviously capitalize on it to help build the brand for the greater good so that so the athlete first let's say approach is not necessarily uh, a bad thing if it can help raise the tide for the league and find success financially. But the question I have is a, a, a follow-up on that is uh, I, I'm really looking forward to getting your take on this because this has been a big topic. Came up in a pod a couple months ago. We had a woman on from the WNBA and we we're talking about their strategy to build the business. And she talked specifically about the very big priority they are right now to focus more on owned and operated digital media products, a little bit less so on third party. So if you think about how social media essentially shifted a lot of value to the platforms, uh, Meta probably being the most dramatic example in social media history, and some value coming back to the leagues, the players, et cetera, it's still third-party data. It's still third-party rules and guidelines that these leagues do not control, the players do not control. And it may not be as valuable as what can be done now with proprietary fill-in-the-blank streaming services, applications, et cetera. So, So what are your thoughts on that? Like, is there, based on what you started to see at the NBA in the late aughts and then going to the NHL and where we are now with some concerns about social media, it seems like a generally accepted principle right now that you want to do better with your owned products. Is that something to think about vis-a-vis this player influencer thing? Because if you think about the player stuff, Scott, 
a lot of that value is going external to the league. Is there a way to bring it back in to a degree? I know there's a bunch of questions in what I just said. I suppose I, 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 I'm looking at you and I think you kind of get what I'm asking. No, I do. I do. And sorry to interrupt, Tom. Yeah, I, I'd say a few aspects. Um, one, can they own everything that the player does? Well, so the collective bargaining agreement is usually a 700-page document that documents the um, the interactions between owners and labor. And in this case, the uh, NBA owners or sports team owners and, and the players. Um you know, they, they share revenues and there's all these things that are outlined there. But effectively, one of the challenges is as an NBA or other team owner, you kind of can't control what your player says. Now, if somebody acts out of line, they can be, you know, they could be kind of given a penalty, financial penalty, right. whatever, can't play, whatever it is. So there's some things that the league as just a concept will never control because they can't control what the player does. I think the thing I've seen in the last 15, 16 years of sports is, and the thing I based a bit of my career on was the data and the data is really the value. So I think the easy way for any entity to say, Hey, we're going to commercialize this business is to get a contract and get X millions of dollars for it. Hey, we've commercialized it. The money's in our account, but the data I'd say is just as valuable. And now, extracting the value out of that data has gotten easier over time. It's still not all the way there. But the third thing I mentioned, in addition to the collective bargaining agreement and the data, is where AI is taking us. And here in the Bay Area, it's like you walk along the street and there's like you hear AI, AI, AI. It's just, it's just nuts. Um, but AI is based on data. And no matter how good of an athlete is with a team or a personality or influencers with a particular brand, there's one of him or her, like that's it. The humans don't scale in that sense. So AI is now creating digital influencers that are earning thousands of dollars a month, right? These people are not real. They are mm -hmm. AI generated. Um, but also I think more importantly, AI is bringing customized journeys to a user. So the way it used to be, as you well know, Tom, was, hey, we've got this population of people. We got group A and group B. Okay, we'll treat A this way and B that way. And then it starts to split and fragment and splinter more and more and more. And now uh, I was at an event just about a month ago and somebody was saying every user on our site has a unique customer journey. Everyone. Now, I'm going to take him at his word and uh, you know accept that as truth. But that's, I think, where the leagues need to think about this. It's, hey, we've got data, and then there's a bit of data that's outside of our bounds, right? That meta owns or whatever owns, right? What data do we have and what can we do around that data? The NBA actually, as uh, an initiative, has taken all of their team databases and combined those. This which, is the NBA, NBA ID initiative? Yeah, which, yeah. which has been, it was a really political issue, right? Like team A doesn't want team B to see their the people in their database. Right. But the NBA brought that in. And now they've got some centralized intelligence around that, right? So they can see that you did register at NBA.com, but you also bought a Knicks hat and you were at a Nets game, you know, all those things. Um, so the data, how do you, as I like to say, weaponize it, right? How do you get that data to give you that value back? I think that's where you want to start thinking about owning, because then you can have that data under your aegis. But right. then the more data you build, and this goes well beyond sport the more likelihood you can build your own LLM, large language model, or use another one and develop a central base of intelligence around that data. Mm -hmm. That's that's where it gets really, really powerful. Right. And right now, when you go on ChatGPT, OpenAI, and kind of pop a question, and it kind of goes off into the cloud and it learns, right? And that data's gone. Like, you right. can't keep, you know, it's not like yours to own. Right. But these larger entities, whether it be sports entities or non-sports entities, have to think about the data they have and how do you start to build the intelligence around that to inform unique customer journeys, to inform how to market to people. That's where AI is taking us. And I think there's a little bit of froth in where we are right now. And it'll cool back off, but that's where this, this journey takes us in the next five, six years. So in a very long-winded way of answering your question, Tom, I'd say it is important for the leagues in this case to think about ownership, especially as a resultant amount of data is owned by them and then can be operationally turned into something larger using AI and other technologies around this. That's a really interesting thought um, about having 
the opportunity to build your own large language model from yourself. So let's take the example of NBA entertainment or NFL films, these vast archives of amazing video, just millions of hours, I suppose, that are that are in the archive. John um, and probably most of those uh, doing the voiceover. What, yeah. what are what are some some potential use cases of let's say an NBA specific LLM? Yeah, um, I'll give you this example. So I actually advise a company out of Australia called Social Trait, and um, what they're doing is creating AI cohorts to push content through to evaluate the efficacy of that content. So imagine you're a brand and you could have text, you could have images or video and say, how will people react to this, right? We've seen what happened with Bud Light. We saw what happened with Target. We've seen what happened with other brands when they put a message out there and it doesn't really resonate or Mm -hmm. it turns around and goes absolutely haywire. Um, I think any of these leagues, you know, try to quote unquote, protect the shield, right? They, they want to not sully the reputation of the league, the teams, its members, its players, its owners. And, you know, they, they want to have to build their own LLM to do this. But I do think there's a lot around the messaging and the targeting that these leagues could do with AI. Now, building an own LLM, if you're sitting on, let's say, NFL films, you're sitting on 60 years of video content for them, 70, whatever it is. 70, it's harder than the 60s, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, and you have the purchase behaviors from your consumers, and you have people who've done surveys, and you have people who've bought Green Bay Packers hats, and, 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 and. You can start to stitch these things together and think about new ways to bring personalized content to a fan knowing that he grew up in Green Bay, was the biggest Packers fan in the world. His family relocated to Miami when he was a teenager, but now he lives in Los Angeles. And if you were to look and say, who's this random person in Los Angeles and why is he like the Packers? It starts to make sense, right? right? And I think that is the holy grail for where things are going. We're still far away from it. There's a lot of things to, to kind of, all the pipes to put together and the wires to connect. But that's where I think the power of artificial intelligence and these other like technologies can help these massive brands like sports leagues and other non-sports entities. Yeah. Scott, let's talk a little bit about the the core product of sports, which is the live games. Mm-hmm. And the reality that the market has become way more complicated in terms of distribution and discovery for the fans. So you know that this is an issue with a bunch of sports perhaps uh, none none more so than uh, soccer, uh, where you want MLS, that's obviously Apple. You want Champions League, it's Paramount, CBS, Premier League, NBC, Peacock, et cetera. I think one of the Sportico guys did a, a chart a few months back where said, if you're a, if you're a, a, a full-scale soccer fan, fan of all global soccer, to get everything you'd want, I think you needed 11 I think on the, there were 11 streaming services on the list. Yep. I know from all my work at Columbia teaching and being around young people all the time, this this is a really fraud issue. These young people are not necessarily subscribing to these services, as you know. Maybe there's some password, well, not maybe, there's password sharing going on. There's a the use of pirated streams, which I think is actually way more prevalent than the industry uh, talks about. Mm-hmm. But what... How do you square this with all the great opportunities that you just talked about through AI and advancing data collection and, and data analysis when the core product is actually, in terms of the de- fundamental delivery and discovery, is more challenged than it ever was in the history of uh, modern sports since TV in the 1950s? It's a huge lost opportunity, Tom. Um, I This summer, my, my wife and I and our family, we went to Europe. Um, and we were there for a couple of months and I got to meet some big soccer clubs who shall remain nameless. Um, but what they talk about is we have fans all around the world and we don't know where they are and what they're buying and how they consume us. And these, especially international football soccer brands are massive entities with a hundred plus years of following, right? Very jingoistic. And hundreds of millions of fans, right? 
Of course. Yeah. And it's very easily consumable sport. You can play soccer football by getting a ball of wound up cloth, putting a couple of sneakers out and you've got your, your soccer pitch there. Right. Um, so <laughs> the, the headline here is that there's a ton of lost opportunity. So as an example, I love Premier League. I watch it every weekend with our, our daughter and my wife and our young son. And yes, I have Peacock for that. But yet we cut the cord um, a couple of years ago and we don't have USA Network. So I can't see some of the Premier League games because I only have Peacock. So then you think about, okay, it's Champions game on a Tuesday night. I got to get Paramount for that. So you're exactly right. And the I think the way it's being captured right now is through those fan networks, maybe like a bleacher, maybe like other ones that say, hey, you're a soccer football fan. Come here and follow. Right. Mm -hmm. And we will provide you the news across these different areas to try to at least stitch together some central concept of being a quote unquote soccer fan. Um, myself, I'm on Reddit. Right. I'm on the soccer subreddit and I'm looking through there and they're covering English Premier League, Bundesliga, MLS, Liga MX. And for me, I can catch my news in all one central digest, but none of those teams, Club America doesn't know that I'm a Club America fan. Mm -hmm. They have no idea, right? right? So that's a lost opportunity. And I think we're talking about a huge commercial opportunity to tie that part, those parts together. Now, the problem is, like you said, the fragmented media market. So you need to start consolidating that. And I know CBS has been doing a lot around this investment around uh, Paramount. Obviously, the NBC folks have done it around um, Premier League. And the Premier League just redid their rights for $6.7 billion. Um, but yeah, it's it's a huge lost opportunity. And I wish I had this you know, silver bullet answer how to unify all these. I mean, I, well, let me just throw a potential silver bullet solution theoretically is the, a consult. You use the word consolidation. Is the Apple MLS deal a model of what should be in the future? It certainly could be because it makes it much more accessible to people. And I think right now, Tom, the, the 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 cost and the resource needs to grab someone's attention get higher and higher every day. Right. Right. So if you have the brand power of MLS and Apple and making it easy to consume that, that's great. Right. And you want to put your product right in front of your consumer and say, don't you need this? This, Yes, right. you do. Great. Let's give it to you. Right. Um versus having like you said like the pirated thing is well i got to find this pirated thing well that link isn't working i gotta try this one and ultimately it builds frustration for the user although that person wants to follow it even in an illegal manner the difficulties are, i just can't consume it so what happens is you start to lose the love for it because you're not watching that game you're saying exactly that's kind of what i'm getting at like is that is is that like an existential threat that fandom will not develop or you could make a you could make an argument that to your point about capturing all the highlights, whether whether it's on Reddit or or uh, Instagram or whatever, you know that there's very liberal distribution of highlights. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of young people who don't necessarily watch many live games, but they're I would call them serious fans of the sport. They're just literally not watching what we consider to be the core product. They don't seem to mind because typically the best events and actions in those games, the highlights are freely available. That plus all the other free stuff you get in social media, it, that may be enough for a, a, a certain type of fan, particularly if they're younger. So you've seen the stats, Scott, that when you look at the demo breakdowns of television, it's kind of shocking how little TV watching is going on. And even the NFL does not do that great with younger demos, even though they dominate everywhere else. So the point is like, is, is there a middle ground for a league where you're distributing your core product properly to make the money you want to make, but also have the reach and influence that you want to drive fandom and still play that game, that third party game of social media I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm asking, but it, it seems like it's a big issue going forward. Well, it is. And I think so. Think about it as a league. So the person who is maybe on social media, not watching the game. So you're not getting that person's ticketing dollars at your events. You're not getting that person's eyeballs counted in the ratings, right. which means you're not you're serving them ads. You know, Facebook serving them ads for it. Right. right. So th that person is a lost individual in your business, in your P&L. Right. <clears throat> that person's interested in your product, but just not contributing anything has zero contribution to your business. 
So I think the NFL actually has done a little bit more around content on YouTube and that kind of stuff. So you want to whet the appetite and get it out there. Um, and I think the leagues have started to do a little bit more around sharing highlights. So mm-hmm. it entices. Well, Adam Silver used to call it their highlights for marketing for the league. He specifically said that. But I think the core existential question, Tom, is, is that enough to live on? Is that right. enough for me as a fan to consume just out of fans distance and be like, I'm good. I don't need to watch the game next mm-hmm. time. Right. That's the tricky part. And, you know, you have things like gambling and fantasy, which have definitely obviously spiked in the last 10, 15 years. Um, but that is, again, not tied to the fandom of a particular team. I haven't met many betters who bet their favorite team every time, right? right? Like you're betting a certain situation. So your your affinities change. And for fantasy, it's who's on your roster, right? right? Of course, I yeah. Mean, it really just, it, it really messes with your fandom. Uh, I think yeah. we've all learned, those of us who have played fantasy. <laughs> well, exactly right. Yeah. And But that, in a sense, though, speaks to like the Red Zone product, right? Or there's a similar product for Peacock that they use for some of the English Premier League right. matches, where I know I've got a player on this team and a player on this team. I can see everybody at once. That's a perfect hand and glove fit, um, but it's still messing with the, con- the idea of consumption and how to monetize that fan. So these are the core issues that, especially as media dollars are going to start to crest potentially and maybe come back down. Like th- these are the things that are going to affect those discussions. Yeah. Boy, it really is an interesting issue. So um, the, the, our time is going fast, I just noticed. Uh, so let me let me get a question in that I think relates to this more futuristic. We are a few months away from Apple releasing its uh, much-discussed Vision Pro spatial computing device, uh, allegedly going to be brought to the market in March. It's probably a safe assumption that major properties in sports and entertainment are thinking about what they're going to do in terms of software, in terms of experiences. Apple teased Opportunities in sports in the announcement back in June uh, at the developers conference with some imagery of basketball and football. I know some folks that are thinking this could be pretty revolutionary for the um, the holy grail of fully immersive sports experiences. The, the you know the proverbial front row seat, the full Monty experience at a major event, which a lot of people just statistically are not able to go to. World Cup, Olympics, Super Bowl, NBA, front courts, you know, courtside, whatever. What are your thoughts on that? Will, will this be an inflection point for the sometimes frustrating uh, uh, part of the business in, in many people's eyes of uh, virtual reality and just new experiences that were much heralded by Mark Zuckerberg and and Meta with Horizon Worlds, but that kind of petered out. Are we looking at a, an era, and part two of that is when will it really become important potentially, or if you think it will become important in the sports business and how long would it take? Yeah, I mean, we could have been having this discussion six years ago about virtual reality. Wow, right. it's going to change everything. But there's still something core to our beings about high-fiving your friend when something good happens, right? And in virtual land, <laughs> the virtual handshake just doesn't feel the same. Um Look, it all, I think for me, it depends what the product looks like, right? And the demo was great, but look, demos are demos. Right. Um, and the price tag is 3000 bucks potentially, right? I think that's the, the number they've quoted. So $34.99. And then as I joked, if you add Apple Care and taxes, you're well over 4000 There you go. And so let's go back to what you're saying before, Tom. Who's getting that 4000 bucks? Is the NFL getting that 4000 bucks? Is the NBA getting that 4000 bucks? Apple's getting that 4000 bucks. So when you are a sports league and you're thinking about filling an arena, I think you obviously want as many fans as possible. But after you fill the 20,000 seats in your NBA arena, the 20,000 of first person, you certainly want that person to engage in some way, but you sold all your seats. You're out of inventory. This is potentially, like VR could have potentially been, a way to get a 20,000 first seat in the arena and a 20,000 second seat in the arena and Mm -hmm. so on. More and more, it's about customization, like we were talking about earlier with what AI can potentially provide. And people want different experiences. I think a person who is a 25-year-old is and maybe has fewer resources than a person who's 55 years old are going to want different experiences. And much like the 55-year-old would be more likely to buy a center court seat, um, 
he or she might say, Hey, these, these goggles, I'll pay four grand for that. And now I get to watch my beloved warriors in this way. Mm -hmm. And that's enough for me. And I'm willing to pay for the subscription on top of that. That could be it. I think what it's all going to do is create more cohorts of types of users around this stuff. And then it comes back to the league to say, we have the content, we have the, the, the blade in the razor and blade model, right? So Apple make your $4,000 razor, but we're the blade. Can they have the guts, the instincts to say, here's how we create a business around this, that Apple needs our content. And then we can go out there with this content and make sure that it is king, content's king, right? Mm -hmm. And so then it becomes programming, the interactions, what the technology provides, all the rights and likenesses. And unfortunately, a lot of times that discussion gets mucked up in the legal discussions and the uh, partnership discussions and how do all these things work. Hopefully they can figure a way through because I would love for nothing more than to have an amazing experience where I could experience something like in the arena, but it's not taking our two young kids with me to the arena. Right, right. <laughs> And, doing and you could conceivably do it socially, to your point. I mean, social experiences are great. And I, I think that's anticipated in how this would work in terms of the specific device. Um, yeah, no, it's going to be interesting to see. It just feels as though that we we know the tech will improve. That's always the case. We know the prices will come down. That's always the case. We know Apple has been good at making markets sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Uh, a lot of people poo-pooed the iPad. A lot of people poo-pooed the Apple Watch. And um, it was crazy to, to watch what unfolded. So it's going to be really, um, to your last point, it's going to be interesting to see how the leagues play their hand here. Because I, I agree with you. Ultimately, companies like Apple, and we already know this because there's a sponsorship between, for example, the NBA and Meta now for VR products, experiences. Ultimately, they're going to need sports rights in my opinion so it it's going to be especially interesting to watch because it's juxtaposed against just media distribution regular media distribution so if you think about the existing apple mls deal one would conclude i think it was done as a five-year deal i believe maybe um i don't know if you remember but anyway that yes well vision pro will be out in the market during during the time this deal is intact, would MLS start experimenting with Apple's help in this area? I think the the bet is probably good answer is probably yes. And will Apple then start buying essentially, let's call it the MR rights from these rights holders <laughs> in the context of these media deals or exclusive of these media deals? Because as you know, Scott well from being in two leagues and my which is similar to my experience leagues are really good at finding new ways to slice as my old boss used to say slice the baloney <laughs> for new deals so anyway that's it last just last quick answer on that do you, do you think like mr rights could be a thing certainly yeah i mean did we think that when i was at the nhl we started looking at digital dashboards right, right. and the notion that they are virtual um right. virtual signage right it's an increasing inventory piece in sponsorship. Yeah. So certainly could. Um, I think the big thing, just taking a step back for a moment that the leagues and any content provider has to think about is what is that hook? Like the example is the first time I went to Yankee stadium as a kid and smelling the grass, right? Like yeah. you, those events and you, it doesn't leave you. It's there forever. And can a virtual experience do that for you? I don't, it's going to be tougher, but man, if it could, it'd be amazing. Cause yeah. then there, there's, you could, infinite scale on that right as long as people are buying four thousand dollars. well when you said the twenty thousand in first seat uh, and then second conceivably for a global sport a, a sport as popular as well a lot of these big sports like nba yep. it's it's a it could be an order of magnitude that could be significant so i would use an example scott like um 2026 the world cup will be here in north america and if you could tell a lot of people around the world that they could get a really great immersive experience conceivably through Apple Vision Pro or something like it, and the cost for access, like a pay-per-view or pay-per-event, let's call it, is, I'm just making this up, $100, something affordable and modest. 
I mean, they they could make an an amazing amount of money if uh, if this could scale on a global basis. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it feels like that future may not be too uh, fanciful. Like it could it could work. No, and it's that hook. So I was um, <clears throat> I was in Mexico City last year, and I was at a Estadio Azteca. That is where the 86, 1986 game of Maradona versus England happened, the hand of God. And he scored the other goal, which was better than that. And to this day, the bulk of their people taking the stadium tour are Argentinians because they just want to be where it happened. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll be hosting the games, obviously, in 26 with a lot of other stadiums and venues. Um, so it's all about that hook. Like, what's that hook? If I could go and experience what that was like as an Argentinian fan, or maybe not as an English fan that day, you know, those kinds of things, that's where it's like, wait a minute, there, this no. improves the scale hundredfold, right? Like no. That's, that's where you want. It. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating to think about because there's going to be so much creativity uh, that'll come to this and, and uh, so much stuff intertwined with marketing and, and commercialization. It's going to be, I think over time it'll become a, a bit of a game changer, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it unfolds. Anyway, we've got about less than 10 minutes left. Let's turn to our last segment. I gave you fair warning. So two questions we ask all the guests, Scott, as you know. One is, when you can make each answer, rel- let's make the first answer relatively brief, because I think the second answer would be more interesting to the listeners uh, vis-a-vis the advice. But on the first one, what do you use to, to stay up to date and stay smart? Any Anything you want to uh, highlight or point out? Yeah, sure. Uh, I say a few things. Um, I'm living under the banner of you are the amalgam of your five closest friends, right? So it's the people that you surround yourself with. And thankfully, in New York City, in San Francisco, we are we have an embarrassment of riches of intelligent people around us. So selfishly, I'm going to say I've gotten to know so many really intelligent and bright founders and advisors and investors. I try to surround myself with them because I want to learn from them. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, if I can't remember, humans don't scale that well. So if I can't be at every event, then it's like, how do I follow them on LinkedIn? How am I checking out news and posts? So we've talked about before, you know, Stratechery with Ben Thompson. I think he's really bright and really adept. Lenny Rakitsky, um, I think in the sports side, there's even, uh, I mean, there are certain people on LinkedIn that are intriguing, um, but for me, I'm looking more at the tech side of it and then kind of taking that back to my sports experience and saying, mm-hmm. how do I look at it through that lens? Right. Um, and even when you look at a company like Carta, Carta does um, options for companies. So if you're setting up a cap table and you have certain investors, certain employees, Carta produces all of these results from all the companies they use, all blinded, to show you what compensation rates look like or what's going on with Series A companies raising, that kind of stuff. I'm a data nerd at the core of it all. That's where I love learning from. And then additionally, there are some some books I might recommend. Um, One that I read uh, recently was uh, based on career, was The Four Elements. It's by a guy named Tim Butler, who heads up the Career and Professional Development Center at Harvard Business School, where I went to school. And talking about how identity, there are four elements, identity, community, necessity, and horizon are so important in in defining one's career. Like, who are you? Who are the people you want to be around? Why do you need to work, right? Hey, I've got a mortgage. Hey, I've got whatever. And then the horizon, where do you want this all to go? So for me, I love to surround myself with really bright people who know things that I don't know (laughs) and try to learn from them through osmosis whether it's on the technology front, a bit of the sports front as well, and then also just personal development. Yeah, that's a good answer vis-a-vis the, uh, the well, I liked all of them, but the, the point about reading the, the data and reports that are published by the companies themselves. So whether it's the Deloitte sports sports reports, the Cephem Sports Innovation Lab, or Sports Tech X, or the free stuff Ben Thompson publishes. I mean, it, there's kind of an endless array of things to use for reference and learning. Also, the fact that most of these organizations that do events, typically after the events are done live, they will publish, for example, conference panels and things like that. That That's another good thing. Okay. Last question. Can you offer some career advice, particularly to the young people getting their careers going? Um, I shared a little bit of this earlier, but remember, these are multiple 5K runs. This is not a marathon nor a sprint. Um, So tastes change. The world changes outside of you. It's macro things that are going on with technology, with 
unfortunately, war, everything else going on in the world right now. Those things are out of our control. But we have things in our lives which we can control. And it's the stage of your life, where you're living, who you're living your life with, potentially kids, pets, spouses, all that stuff. And just remember that it's okay to change your tastes. And people are going to say, hey, why did you leave that job for this one? What are you thinking? Um, there's actually another book I'm, I'm going to start reading quite soon. It's on, I've downloaded it at least. It's called The Pathless Path. And it's about somebody who was at a consulting firm, had a very kind of nice title doing his thing and just realized it wasn't fulfilling, it wasn't satisfying to him. So he moved to Asia with his wife. They lived very cheaply for a while. And now he's produced some uh, books and he's been writing and he's making more money now than he ever did before. And he loves it. And I think we all get caught up in the grind, the rat race of things. And if you can just take a step back and say, is this really complete who I am? Is this really what I want to do? Because mm -hmm. when you think about it, the most time you spend is at work. I right. met my wife through work in right. real story. So you just make sure you're putting a lot of effort into finding out what you want to do. And yeah. it's not a shame if you don't like what you do, but it's a shame yeah. if you don't do something about it. Yeah. So just take those mile markers every so often, take a health check. Does this, is this right for me mentally, physically, socially, intelligently, like intellectually, like that's what's really important. And I would just tell um, the listeners to not get caught up in what other people say or, or want you to do. That's, that's a good answer. Yeah. And also just to put yourself in position, particularly when you're young to be learning, you don't have to love the job necessarily. Cause as I like to say, it's not a life sentence. You may do this for a year <laughs> or two, but as long as you're learning something, from it, then you got to consider a valuable experience. I think everybody we know, I think it's fair to say, you and I have been around for a while, everybody we know has had really good jobs and some not so good jobs. That's just the way the chips fall. Uh, and you have to kind of accept that going in. But if you can actually uh, take something away from those less than perfect experiences, that that's at least a, a net plus. Uh, I can say it. with 100% confidence, I learned more from the jobs where it didn't work out more so than the jobs where it did work out. Yeah, that that taught me. And that's how you learn. And you yeah. dust yourself off and you pick yourself up and you go in and keep those lessons in the back of your head for the next one. Yeah. All right. Well done. Thank you for that. Um, Scott, if uh, any listeners want to find you and what you're up to um, in the biz, where should they look? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, again, Scott Jablonski. My user tag is Scott M. Jablonski with my middle initial. And then also my company is 77 Analytics. That's 77analytics.com. It's just a little bit of information on me and links back to my, my LinkedIn. Um, but you can find me on there. Nice. Perfect. I can't thank you enough for uh, your time and this great convo. I'm sorry Joe missed it, but he'll at least with podcasts, you get to listen to the ones you missed. Uh, and it'll be out uh, soon. But thank you, Scott. That was a, a great combo. I actually wish we had more time because I think that those those last couple of issues about where things are going is um, infinitely fascinating to many of us because it feels like we're on the on the brink of some pretty significant changes as we get deeper into this decade. Uh, so appreciate your thoughts and everything. Anyway, um, we appreciate everybody listening. If any listeners have any suggestions for topics or guests, feel free to reach out to me or Joe or the program. And we'll see you all in the next episode.